Foes before them, flames behind them. Ever east and onward, eager rode they, and folk fled them as the face of God, till earth was empty, and no eyes saw them, and no ears heard them in the endless hills, save bird or beast, baleful haunting the lonely lands. Thus at last came they to Mirkwood's margin, under mountain shadows. Waste was behind them, walls before them. On the houseless hills, ever higher mounting, vast, unvanquished, lay the veiled forest. Dark and dreary were the deep valleys, where limbs gigantic of lowering trees in endless aisles were arched or rivers, flowing down afar from fells of ice. Among ruinous rocks, ravens croaking, eagles answered in the air wheeling, wolves were howling on the woods border. Cold blew the wind, keen and wintry, in rising wrath from the rolling forest among roaring leaves. Rain came darkly, and the sun was swallowed in sudden tempest. There evening came with misty moon moving slowly through the wind wreckage in the wide heavens, where strands of storm among the stars wandered. Fires were flickering, frail tongues of gold under hoary hills. In the huge twilight gleamed ghostly pale on the ground rising like elvish growths in autumn grass in some hollow of the hills hid from mortals the tents of Arthur. Time wore onward. Day came darkly, dusky twilight over gloomy heights glimmering sunless. In the weeping air the wind perished. Dead silence fell. Out of deep valleys, fogs unfurling floated upward. Dim vapors drowned, dank and formless, the hills under heaven, the hollow places in a fathomless sea foundered sunken. Trees looming forth with twisted arms, like weeds under water where no wave moveth, out of mist menaced man forewandered. Cold touched the hearts of the host encamped on Mirkwood's margin at the mountain roots. They felt the forest, though the fogs veiled it, their fires fainted. Fear clutched their souls, waiting watchful in a world of shadow for woe they knew not, no words speaking. pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Well, welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, new father of a child named Arthur, so if you hear cute little noises or angry little noises, it's because I'm doing double duty today. But with me today, I also have Jonathan Geltner, 
How's it going, Jonathan? It's going well, Chris. How is it going, you? It is busy. It's busy yes. and 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 a bit and a bit crazy, but 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 pretty good. Pretty good. Are you? Where are you right now? Well, might you ask? I am not at home, and so I have not my my library at hand, just in case that comes up. I'm at the beginning of a a peregrination around the northeastern quadrant of our great country, involving visiting friends and family on both sides, my wife's and my own, taking the kids around, you know, so they get to see their kinfolk and whatnot. So I'm in a, I'm in an Airbnb right now, and my wife's hometown. And I'll be elsewhere in Ohio later to later this week. And then I'll be on the East Coast for a little while. During all of which time, I'm also supposed to be working. Of, of course, course, of course. This vacation. So, <laughs> yeah, that's how it goes. Well, thank you for taking time out of your peregrination to, to, to speak with us. Um, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be talking with you again. Yeah, yeah, it's always a pleasure. Listeners, Jonathan Geltner is the author of Absolute Music, a novel published, was it 2022 technically that it came out? Yeah, almost exactly one year ago. Okay, okay, uh, yeah. July 1st. So that's published by Slant Books. He's in the process, I believe, if memory serves, of, pro- of writing two more books. That's One, true. like Absolute Music, will be literary fiction and will deal in some way with Tolkien's Arthur, I think I remember you saying. Oh, no, actually, no? so actually, it's fantasy. I'm writing a fantasy. Um, oh, okay. It's pretty much done, although that's nice. supposed to be finishing up right now. And the other is is like nonfiction, literary nonfiction, I guess you could call it, a kind of critical memoir or a memoir through literary criticism or something like that. Um, and it's very much about fantasy and, and some other kinds of literature as well. But yeah, and, and that one is most definitely talking quite a bit about Tolkien. Yeah, and of course, Tolkien, as for any fantasist, is in the background of any writing project in that genre. So I've certainly been thinking about him a good deal recently. Yeah, yeah. You were especially interested in, in talking about this when I asked you, you know, what, what you'd kind of like to talk about that's Inklings related. What is it about Tolkien's Arthur especially that, you know, that, that interested you? Well, so I'm I'm also a poetry guy. My my training is partly in poetry and as a scholar anyway, not a writer so much. Although I did I did a book-length translation of poetry, Paul Claudel's Five Great Odes, but I'm interested in Tolkien very much as a poet on the one hand. I, I don't feel like he gets talked about very much that way. And I'm interested in how poetry verse is related to fantasy or at least it was for Tolkien very much. And and yet he was a prose writer primarily, so that's a kind of interesting thing. Maybe we could we could talk about some in a bit. So I'm interested in his poetry, and this is one of his most beguiling poetic creations. Yeah, and I'm also very much interested in, and this is certainly comes to the fore in the book project, nonfiction project I just mentioned. I'm very much interested in how sort of three things come together, and they're not all three on. They're not all three evident in Tolkien's Arthur, but two of them are. Those three things are sort of metaphysics, philosophy, religious faith, on the one hand, fantasy as a literary project, and then the third being the natural world, ecological considerations and ideas and experiences. How all three of these things come together. 
So I should say, listeners, just in case you haven't read it, The Fall of Arthur is a short thousand-line poem that Tolkien began but did not finish. It follows the pattern of some of the earliest Arthurian stories in what's called the Chronicle Tradition. The idea of these stories is, is basically that Arthur goes out to the continent to conquer heathens or reassert his authority only to find his nephew Mordred back at home has usurped his kingship and married his queen. He returns to fight Mordred at home and he is slain and so is Mordred usually. That's the basic plot most stories of Arthur and his knights that came later have rested on including the idea of Lancelot and Guinevere's treasonous adultery and the quest for the Holy Grail. In later medieval tellings, the idea of Arthur conquering the continent was not nearly as important, but Tolkien brings it back to the fore in his retelling. His poem, which is written in alliterative meter following the style of Beowulf, contains five parts or cantos. The first has Arthur and his best knight Gawain fighting heathen who have been oppressing Roman Christendom, and suddenly they hear that Mordred has turned traitor. The second has Mordred trying to seduce Guinevere by force and Guinevere fleeing him. The third canto has Lancelot watching the ocean after being exiled for his love affair with the queen, waiting for a summons from Arthur or Guinevere to ask for his help and hearing none. The fourth is Mordred's men seeking out Guinevere who has disappeared back into the hidden country from which she came and a naval battle beginning between Mordred's and Arthur's forces. The fifth is unfinished and Arthur is looking from sea to his own land of Britain contemplating the terrible cost of making war on his own people. Hopefully that makes the rest of this discussion a bit clearer. And in the fall of Arthur, this unfinished, fragmentary, not epic exactly, but anyhow, long poem, narrative poem that we have from Tolkien, you you see a rather amazing display of both his achievement as a prosodist, a, a worker in the craft of verse making, and maybe even you could say a theorist in the craft of verse making, and you also see his profound sensibility for the natural world. I think that's the best way I could describe it initially here. So it's just a, it's, and it's not a long poem, you know, it, it's really only about a thousand lines altogether divided into four complete seemingly books. And then the sort of fragment of a fifth one, and those are quite short books of poetry as as long poems go. So teachers out there consider teaching a poem. It's actually, it's a little difficult, which we can maybe talk about why that is from a prosodic yeah. or poetic point of view. Um, yeah. So let's see, we should probably talk a little bit more about, about the context. It's a poem that as far as what I can understand from what Christopher Tolkien has written he doesn't know a whole lot about, about exactly what the context was, exactly why and, and when his father wrote it. You're saying is written mostly in the 30s. There's an account of R.W. Chambers reading it and really being impressed with it. He was like an older mentor figure of, of Tolkien in the 30s and said, you simply must finish it. And of course, <laughs> Tolkien never finished it. 
Um, Why would you ever say that to a writer? You've just needed yeah. it to not happen. I, yeah, yeah. A certain amount of superstition in such matters. You're is inviting, inviting trouble. Although Lewis said that to Tolkien a whole lot, and we never would have gotten Lord of the Rings if he hadn't said it so much. Maybe he had uh, a special charisma for these guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless you're C.S. Lewis, don't go around yeah. saying it to writer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the context for it. Well, I mean, just to... I don't know if I can make a great segue here, forgive me, but just to, for anyone who is really interested or, or keen on the poetics that, that Tolkien's trying to develop in this poem, be aware also that, so Tolkien was not really a, a, a medievalist of like the later Middle Ages. He didn't like, when, when, when the literary deposit became hugely influenced by France and sort of middle high German and, and stuff, Italian and he he famously disliked cordially disliked the French language or is that allegory I'm thinking of the cordial dislike so his dislike of French might not have been cordial at all but he did he definitely disliked it so he's not really like a, a scholar of that he wasn't really a scholar of that that period and yet he did love a, a good deal of Middle English literature. And Middle mm. English is very different from Old English, yeah. much closer to modern English. Right. Uh, and, and part of it is the French influence there, but the Middle English poems that he was a big scholar of were not Frenchified the way Chaucer is. Exactly. Um, so, exactly. so like the alliterative Mort Arthur, Mort Arthur, it has a lot of sort of older English words, words that are out of, use and and even more so with some of the older arthurian poems in the chronicle tradition he translated or i should say modernized um depends on how you want to view it the uh two poems the two great poems by the anonymous figure who's known by either of those two poems either as the gawain poet or the pearl poet the beautiful poem pearl which is very mm. religious visionary also elegiac and and Gawain in the Green Knight, which is by now probably much more famous, and, and and I think Sir Orfeo as well, and and he wrote some. So there's a nice collection of those things, and some of Tolkien's thoughts on this kind of versification, alliterative meters, are I believe also collected there. So for people who are interested in that, it's worth looking into. Now, of course, so the late medieval period that. That Middle English comes from that's 14th century stuff or 15th century, even from Mallory is when you get like the I don't know how to put it, like the sort of triumph and codification of of the Arthurian stories. You know, they, they get started in like really early medieval Celtic stuff that we don't even have all of, you know, and then and then the French get a hold of them <laughs> in the in the 12th century with Chrétien de Troyes and, um, and Marie de France, who actually wasn't living in France, but and, and some other people, and they, they just take off from there in terms of a literary tradition and become you know, maybe the most, the single most distinctive and recognizable mythos mm -hmm. of Western European literature and, for and the really thousand uh, years. And the really important big name, even just before Chrétien, is Geoffrey of Monmouth. Yeah, right, of course. Is the first one to make 
Arthur really, really, really popular, and it's it's likely there wouldn't have been you know nearly as much. That's right. But but Jeffrey Monmouth, so his story of Arthur, and this is really worth bringing up in in the context of what Tolkien's written here. Jeffrey Monmouth's story of Arthur was it's part of this longer history of all of the kings of Britain, and it's all like kind of pseudo history. None of it for the most part, actually happened. But he's writing about this king named Arthur who traveled all the way down to Italy and conquered, you know, basically all of Europe, right? Which is completely total fabrication. Nobody did yeah, that. I mean, he's kind, of, he's kind of a Charlemagne. Well, uh, so this is an interesting thing that came up on Twitter or something. Someone was like, if you found out, you know, that Arthur was real with this effect your 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 reading of the the stories or something and my first thought was like well of course he was real I, I mean, there were plenty of people there were plenty of historical arthurs so so the, yeah. the the historical situation that the arthur myth comes out of i mean obviously king arthur as a globe bestriding hero is is a myth but there is a very real historical situation that this story came out of mm-hmm. and it, maybe it's worth sketching it in brief, because it's actually very much present in Tolkien's poem. So mm-hmm. uh, you've got the Roman Empire, you've got the province of Britannia, and it's Romanized for, what, over 300 years. You know, it's conquered in the middle of the first century AD. And they're just swell, for the most part, with being Romans. They eventually get pretty well Christianized, probably. And yeah, you've got some like crazy picts up north and the occasional savage Celtic insurrection, you know, in what would become like England and Wales. But for the most part, it's like a stable Roman province mm-hmm. for longer than the United States has been an independent yeah. country. And these, by the way, yeah. these are these are listeners. These are Britons that are Romanized. They're not they're not English. Uh, they so we are, call them. Yeah, um, we, we, they're we call them... Celtic people who are Christian romanized britons yeah and the language they spoke would have been a form of Brithon- the, the brythonic branch of the celtic languages so related to modern day breton right and and welsh yep. not to irish and scots gaelic so anyway these guys are fairly well christianized and then of course the western roman empire especially starts to fall apart and the Romans withdraw the legions, not actually to defend, I think, from external invasion, but as part of their interminable struggle for power um, at the end of the 4th century AD. And so they're they're fighting each other. you know. And, and there's a famous kind of pseudo-historical event, the so-called rescript of Honorius in the early 5th century, in which, you know, the, the legions have been withdrawn. And Britain is starting, like the rest of the Roman Empire, to have all these, uh, has actually already been happening in the rest of the Roman Empire for a while, but there's all these Germanic people trying to settle the country. That we call them, or we used to call them Anglo-Saxons, they're you know a bunch of different tribes or whatever of Germanic people. Sometimes the settlement was peaceful, sometimes it was not, whatever. They, uh, they weren't Vikings, they weren't that like into rapine and pillaging, but they could be pretty bad. And this Britain wrote to Honorius saying like, we'd like the legions back, please. We're a province of the empire. And his response, the rescript was you're on your own. <laughs> and yeah. They never came yeah. back. So, so, so 
I mean, the, the, you get these Roman, Roman Britain, Romanized, largely Christianized Britain being invaded by pagan Germanic people. Mm-hmm. And in, in the wake of the departure of the Roman military, these still very Romanized culture, at least in the higher levels of it, but, you know, pretty good at organizing. Romans were very good at that. So you have these warlords who would put together their own militias to try and defend the island. And Arthur was one of these guys. And 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 last I checked into this, military historians will say things like, well, you know, at this time, you don't have heavy cavalry. They don't even have like proper stirrups and stuff on horses. So they're not fighting on horseback like high medieval knights. But they did probably use horses to get around fast because you got this island with all this coastline and you never know where these Germanic people are going to land and start making inroads. So you got to be able to get around quickly to any part of the island. And and of course, were the island to be unified, the great quest of Arthur, it would be a lot easier to coordinate defenses against these incoming barbarians, so-called. And and Arthur is like the last great heroic Romanized Britain defender of, and, and in historical terms, he's tragic because, you know, it's called England now for a reason. The Angles, the Germans mm-hmm. eventually took over and Wales, the Welsh, this is a Anglo-Saxon word for foreigner. foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> the Welsh don't call themselves that. Um, so yeah, uh, because crazy. because they were the ones who were originally on the island, but the English pushed them to the margin and pushed them to the oh, edge. Yeah. That's where foreigners. those foreigners live over there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. See. So so that's the world, the real the real historical world that the story of Arthur is coming out of. And now, how does Tolkien begin? So so if you think of the island of Great Britain, where are these Germans coming from? They're coming from the east. They're coming from the Frisian coast and and Jutland, not yet from Norway, really. That'll happen eventually, too. <laughs> everyone everyone tries to invade Britain at some point. And they're coming from the east. And they're pagans to the at least partially Christianized, Romanized Britons. And and, and the very beginning of, of Tolkien's poem is not the sword in the stone and all that stuff. It's Arthur eastward in arms mm-hmm. purposed his war to wage on the wild marches overseas sailing to Saxon lands from the Roman realm, ruin defending. Mm -hmm. Thus the tides of time to turn backward and the heathen to humble. His hope urged him that with harrying ships they should hunt no more on the shining shores and shallow waters of South Britain, booty seeking. So it's right there. It's a very actually historical poem in that sense yeah high medieval stuff it is not gonna acknowledge that right but he's basing it he's basing the whole motif of him going to the continent on on jeffrey of monmouth and on what was and lacamon and and then following them the author of the alliterative mort do when they have kind of getting away from the historical aspect of it a little bit they have arthur being so awesome that he conquered all of europe and then conquered rome right so what's really cool is that tolkien takes that and inverts that and he keeps the whole like kind of chronicle narrative of going to the you know going to europe to conquer right and then being turned back by the treachery of mordred but instead of having it be conquering 
Rome, he's actually protecting Rome, right? He's a because because Tolkien is grounded in the actual, you know, in in the correct history a little bit more than than some of the medieval authors that he's that he's following, but also adapting. So it's really kind of cool how Tolkien sort of how how Tolkien has him rather than fighting the Romans because in the, in the alliterative mart, which, which he is partially following here, it's like the Romans and the evil heathen people and the Saracens and the giants and witches and warlocks and things like that. They're all fighting against Arthur and his good Christian English and Britain people. It's the crusades. Um, he, he gets yeah, mixed yeah, exactly. Exactly. But except like they're 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 fighting the emperor of Rome. They're fighting Lucius, the emperor of Rome. Tolkien takes Lucius out, and he and he has him instead of going to fight the Romans, he's going to fight the heathen Germanic tribes who have been making a pest of themselves, both you know with respect to Britain, but also with respect to Rome, which is really which is really a cool adaptation of the you know kind of 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 the chronicle tradition of of arthur yeah i mean i think that the the chronicle tradition well so he says from the roman realm but i think that's still britain at the time at the time of of arthur Mm. but but the thing about that chronicle tradition they're kind of mixing up a bunch of different things Mm -hmm. they've got memories of charlemagne hanging in, in their subconscious and they've got very fresh knowledge of the crusades which are sort of new at that point but but there is actually real history behind this notion of of a general from Britain going to the continent and fighting Romans. And that's that's what happened in the Roman Empire when these I mean, like, I think Constantine got his start in Britain. Mm-hmm. I think he was born. No, he was born in like Illyria or someplace, but he ended up being in, in, in Britain for a while. Constantine the Great, the, the fourth century emperor, the, the, the Romans were constantly having these these internecine wars basically civil wars or or struggles for power and you would have a this happened multiple times especially after they divided the empire into these big chunks they split it in half and then they split each half in half and britain and gaul were were like one part of the western empire and italy and hispania and north africa or something like that and you'd have these huge these warlords with these huge armies these legions and it happened more than once. A guy would would like use his British legions and and go make his claim to the throne, or you know, to be emperor. They have much of a throne, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know. So so there is actually like a, an accurate yeah. historical memory of how Britain was a kind of pawn in the power politics of of the late Roman Empire. That's coming through there, I think. Right. This notion that a British leader went to the continent or someone stationed in Britain using British soldiers went to the continent and fought these huge battles against other pretenders to the, the Roman imperial power. So, I mean, that's just kind of fascinating how real history is like percolating there under the, mm-hmm. the surface of the origins of literary stuff. And that's exactly the kind of mysterious process Tolkien was fascinated by yeah and wanted to explore and did explore through his own legendarium and the reason I bring that in is because one of the most mysterious things about this poem of the fall of Arthur is well why didn't he why didn't he ever finish it um he got distracted by other stuff he abandoned it around the time that he started working on the hobbit 
were publishing The Hobbit. And then, of course, World War II intervened, and then uh, the effort to continue the world, the writing of The Hobbit, which became The Lord of the Rings. And then after The Lord of the Rings had been published, uh, Tolkien expressed a desire to continue this poem. And I think he couldn't find it. He, hmm. he, wrote, like, he, wrote, to, he wrote to Auden, W.H. Auden, I think it was, saying, you know, I really got to send you this thing I started a while back on Arthur. I just have to put it <laughs> Is in like 1963 or something. Uh, and, and so the the guy, so one of the reasons why Christopher Tolkien was such a hero, um, yeah. and why some of Tolkien's posthumous publications took so long to come out is because I mean I guess apparently John Tolkien, you know, the, Tolkien Senior was a bit disorganized <laughs> with some yeah. of his papers at least, and and the Fall of Arthur was one of them. So if you if you pick up this copy that was eventually published. There's all this explanatory matter. I mean, the actual poem itself mm -hmm. is like, very slim little. compared to the and rest. All this of it. other stuff is Christopher yeah. Tolkien explaining, like, well, this is when I found this part. Yeah. Yeah. On the other part. And, you know, this is my best guess. Yeah. So, why did that happen? So, even Tolkien himself so completely put this project down that when mm -hmm. he did finally want to return to it, he couldn't even do it because right. he didn't know what it was. And and so why? You know, because it seems to have so many things in common with his, his deepest concerns in the rest of his writing. Mm -hmm. his concern yep. to this effort to found a kind of mytho history for yeah. Yeah. Uh, in this case, you really do have to say Britain rather than England, um, right. which makes it so incredibly ironic that he's writing this in like an anglo-saxon in english yeah in english <laughs> meet yeah it, it's 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 really and and christopher tolkien remarks on that as well he's like okay he's he's writing about this great hero against the germanic tribes yeah. in the in the germanic alliterative verse of the germanic <laughs> tribes which is yeah which is which is fascinating and i i i wonder i wonder too you know, I mean, obviously he was interested in, in, in Celtic things, but, uh, you know, the, the Germanic stuff, the, the English stuff has a special place in his heart. Let's, let's get to the actual plot and then let's talk some more about, about various passages. I'm going to put my own Arthur down here. Yeah. So just bear with me for just a second. In terms of plot, there's so little, you know, it's called the fall of Arthur. Presumably he didn't, he wasn't interested much in doing all the stuff that would actually go on to become like an essential, like a mainstay of fantasy writing with like the, the, the hero who's growing up as like a, you know, undercover peasant boy. Right. Right. Or at least a foster child in a, in a noble household, as it is with Arthur. I, I mean, part of that he he uses Mallory a bit, but mainly he's follow he's following the alliterative Mort Arthur Arthure, Morte Arthure, yeah. which again is is the story of this is this is the way the story of Arthur originally was, right? Which was the king is awesome and he goes down and conquers a bunch of people, but then. He finds out that his nephew Mordred has been false to him back in England and has taken Guinevere as his new wife. And in the alliterative Mort, they've had some children. And, and Craddock comes and, and tells Arthur all of that. And so Arthur, after beating the Emperor of Rome, and it, 
about to be crowned emperor himself has to hike back to hike back to England and fight this, you know, battle against Mordred. And the and the whole like kind of moral of the story is, oh, you might be really great now, but you will fall. And especially if you're prideful, that fall will be very, very great, right? As opposed to so much of the other legendary Arthurian material, right? Which is mostly French. Like this, this story, the story basically of like Arthur going out to the European continent and having to come back and then dying at Mordred's hand, that's very, very English, or that's considered very, very English. It's the chronicle tradition. But all the other stuff about Arthur's knights, about Lancelot and Guinevere and the courtly love and all of the, you know, all the different knights and Arthur basically like staying at court and sending knights out and go, them going to having adventures and fairy and things like that. Like that's all French stuff. And so Tolkien incorporates some of that. And he incorporates also the Lancelot Guinevere tryst that he's getting via Mallory from, from kind of the, the French sources, but it's all sort of, it's all sort of weighted differently, right? So that the, this sort of English chronicle tradition has primary, has primary weight and it's repurposed and retooled. But then also you get these moments like in, 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 in book, you know, actually a, a good portion of it is, you know, has to do with what happened with Guinevere and Lancelot and them, you know, being, being ex-lovers and, 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 you know, sort of the Tolkien, Tolkien kind of doesn't ignore all the Mallory stuff. He doesn't ignore all the French stuff, but he kind of sets this basic English story about Arthur at the end of all that stuff, right? After the table has all, after the round table, the fellowship has already kind of been broken, right? And Arthur and Gallen are are going East, but yeah. Yeah. So let's, I want to look at a few passages related to that extremely important point about this poem, this project, this abandoned project. And I would go even one further and, and actually say, not only was he less interested in the the romance stuff the the psychological side of literature you know who says and does what what are their motivations that kind of thing you get a little bit of that in this this poem but it's pretty minor i'll read i'll read it in a second but i also don't even think the the martial side of it the sort of yeah the military if it was written today it would make great military fantasy i don't even think that was his main interest yeah i agree i agree interest was the awesome beauty of the natural world terrifying beauty of it mm-hmm. and the way and particularly i think if he had continued it it would have focused on the the english the british landscape in particular we don't actually get that much of it in what we have because we only the poem breaks off with arthur just getting back to britain so we're not in Britain very much, but at the very end. So I, the reason why I think the focus is going to be on would have been on the British. The, the last lines of the poem, as we have it, as Christopher Tolkien renders it anyway, you've got Arthur has just fought this naval battle off the shore. It seems to be somewhere off the coast of Wales, actually which is a little odd because he's supposedly coming from the East, you know, like Frisia and Denmark, you know, basically. Yeah. 
and he sails all the way around Cornwall and up into like towards Bristol or something. Yeah, that threw me too. Romeril is the yeah. is the place, and I just I honestly don't know exactly where it is, but it does feel very real. Like Tolkien probably visited this place and used it to write. But anyway, so that that's the context, and Arthur's just he, he just had to fight this big naval battle, and Gawain kind of came to his rescue at sea. And so they've cleared the the Saxon boats that were blocking them from landing. But Mordred's got this huge army sitting right there. And so Arthur's saying, like, do we, he's in conference with Gawain, you know, he, he's he's saying, do we really want to do this? You know, like, can we not do something yeah. different? Um, because why? Okay, so um, he's saying, so at the, 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 the book five, is the is the last the last or Canto uh, five is the last one, and and here's Arthur. Here's how it begins. I mean, I'll just read most of it here. It's not very long. Thus Arthur abode on the ebb, riding, riding the tide at sea. At his land he looked and longed sorely on the grass again, there green swaying to walk at his will while the world lasted. The sweet to savor of salt mingled with wine-scented waft of clover over sunlit turf seaward leaning in kindly Christendom, the clear ringing of bells to hear on the breeze swaying, a king of peace, kingdom wielding in a holy realm beside heaven's gateway. Okay, that is not the Britain of the 5th century or the 6th century. That is that mm. is later England. That is the, the Britain of, of long since Christian England that that Arthur is sort of bells ringing. No, they're not they're like church bells <laughs> all over England in the year 500. There's no, there's no Christendom like even he's, he's describing. So already you have this very pastoral like vision of Britain suddenly coming in to the poem in what has otherwise been a very, a very early medieval feeling kind of place. And he's on the land he looked lofty shining treason trod there trumpets sounding in power and pride princes faithless on shore their shields shameless marshaled their king betraying christ forsaking to heathen might their hope turning men were mustering marching southward from the east always the east hurried evil horsemen as plague of fire pouring ruinous white towers some lord of the rings language there were burned yep. wheat was trampled the ground groaning and the grass withered there was woe in britain and the world faded Bells were silent, blades were ringing, Hell's Gate was wide and heaven distant. Toll must he pay, and truage payment, grievous, the blood spending that he best treasured, the lives losing that he loved dearest, their friends should fall and the flower wither of fair knighthood, for faith earning the death and darkness, doom of mortals, ere the walls were won or the way conquered or the grass again there green springing his feet should feel faring homeward never had arthur need or danger tamed or daunted that is to say never had need or danger tamed or, or daunted arthur <clears throat> turned from purpose on or his path hindered now pity whelmed him and love of his land and his loyal people for the low misled and the long tempted the weak that wavered, for the wicked grieving, with woe and weariness and war sated, kingship owning, crowned and righteous, he would pass in peace, pardon granting, the hurt healing, and the whole guiding to Britain the blessed bliss recalling. Death lay between, 
dark before him, ere the way were won or the world conquered. That's the narrator before Arthur then draws Gawain aside and says, do we really want to do this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible. That is Tolkien's feeling for his fellow British. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder oh. if he was familiar with the Bhagavad Gita. Because that's it's it's a very similar sort of uh, moment. You're right. I you uh, know I'm sure he would have had some some. Yeah. The I mean, but that's just to to me that's amazing. That this is nothing like anything in medieval literature. This is this is the the man looking on his country and realizing if I go through with this, a whole bunch of my loyal, he's you know understandably misled, poor subjects are going to die. And my kingdom yep. is is going to be famine. You know, the fields are being trampled by these armies. You know, it's just, and and there's got to be some better way. I don't have to land right here and fight and begin all out war. We could go somewhere else, and I could find another way of, of doing this. Maybe, and it's a, and a tremendously Christian vision here of him coming back. I mean, in, in that line there, I read, "Now pity whelmed him." And love of his land. That pity reminds me of the famous moment in Lord of the Rings where Frodo says it's a pity Bilbo didn't stick him, stick Gollum in the back or something. And and Gandalf turns on him and said, Yes, it was pity. And it, you know, and that's gonna end up somehow being the key to the whole thing and the reason why the long shadow, to use a phrase that also occurs in this poem, is defeated. So you have this like I don't know. It it strikes me as a much more like modern, mature Christian vision guiding this poem rather than just a simple appropriation of of one or another medieval strand of literature. It, it really oh, absolutely feels yeah. like a modern author talking to me there. Yeah, I mean, he he certainly has those those modern sensibilities. If yeah, you know, assuming assuming Gowan isn't just going to pull a Krishna there and. <laughs> they'd be like well you know nothing ever really dies and you know yeah i i agree and 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 that's part of the genius i think of of this poem is that he follows he follows so much of the medieval narrative that like you know th white for example is not qualified to follow or or not interested in following he's tolkien can can get the feeling and the and the ethos and the structure and 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 can understand the the beauty of the structure of some of the older like sort of chronicle narrative stuff he can mingle or, or mix in some of the romance stuff as it suits its purpose but then he's also like you're saying very much a, a modern british guy and yeah like okay so they betrayed arthur that doesn't mean that they should be hewed down and and destroyed, right? Which which you know, to a medieval, they'd be like, "Oh, treachery! That's like the worst sin." Of yeah, course, of course, it means that. <laughs> How many guys can you behead in an hour? You know, like, okay, yeah. So so they're weak, but they're still treacherous. You know, no, so. no, it's a much yeah. more modern and, as I think of it, mature Christian. I don't want to get all you know Whig history or something, but I I really do think you know it's a. I love medieval literature. I've studied it a great deal, you know, whatever. But I value this in Tolkien. I value that he's a yeah. 20th century man and he's able, a, a man who went through the First World War mm-hmm. and and understood firsthand what I do not, the carnage of war. And yeah. and and that comes in this into this poem. 
and, and it's really it's a it's, it's right at the end there so it makes yeah. it all the more kind of heartbreaking that this never carried on probably not in the vein of the bhagavad gita but yeah um, uh, but there could have been some of that and it would have been amazingly good um, yeah i mean do you think do you think he would have decided not to attack i mean do you think tolkien would have broken that fully with chronicle chronicle like you know tradition and and, and well, just i mean here's the said, thing no oh, you you take it mordred that's fine it's well, no, it's not quite that that he's contemplating at the end there. He's he's wondering if by by landing peaceably somewhere else, he could make his way into the kingdom and by granting some kind of pardon, if not to Mordred, then at least to a lot of the people who've helped Mordred gain such an overwhelming advantage that Mordred would back down and he could just resume his kingship that way. I mean, it's really quite a strategic line of thought. And, you know, it's very cunning. And, and, and Tolkien was quite smart that way you know yeah. and not primarily concerned to tell just a tale of sword and sorcery and you know guys thwacking each other over the head he actually wanted to have you know some some believable thought go into this and, and i think that's what he gives us there but the problem is from a literary standpoint it is still arthur mm-hmm. and britain is still going to get mostly conquered by the germanic people we're speaking English now, the language, yep. the poetics that the poem is written in. We're not speaking some version of Welsh. Right. Or, and our poetics is not influenced by Celtic poetics. Would that it were, because it's an amazing tradition, but it's not. And and those languages are practically extinct now, or at least quite diminished. So Yeah, be careful, be careful. Um, oh, I know. No, I mean, actually, <laughs> Welsh, Welsh is actually doing kind of okay. And they yeah. have a thriving literature in Welsh, which is a wonder. But most of the rest of the, the Celtic languages are in really bad shape, if not actually extinct yeah. Cornish. And yeah, so anyway, so if he's telling the story of Arthur, he does. I mean, it's called the fall of Arthur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Arthur yeah. has to fall. Arthur has yep. to fall. Yep. So yeah. It's, it's, it's not, I don't think that he would have actually been able to depart completely from that basic story arc. It's more just that he's able to include these mo- like aspects of a modern sensibility that I haven't read the relatively recent book, like Tolkien, the modern reader or something like that it's called. But like, I am, I'm a big proponent of the actually Tolkien was not some reactionary fool who had no idea what was going on and wanted to return to the middle ages or something. I, I think of him as a tremendously modern author something for modern authors to aspire to not some kind of i don't know throwback to something else and and this is one instance of that and then the other instance and it's related to it like i say has to do with the natural world and the way it's just it permeates this poem to the point that you actually start to wonder if getting as much of that in as possible wasn't the primary motivation hmm. or the, the the thing about this writing, which most interested Tolkien as an author. So obviously he knows the, the sources of the Arthurian material, but, you know, oftentimes authors have motivations for works, which are either unconscious or appear to be like incidental, accidental, like sort of little details off yeah. to one side. But actually it was just to get that in there well, that that the whole thing gets written in the first place. Listen to how we, I mean, we've talked about Canto 1, we've talked about Canto 5. Listen to how Cantos 2, 3, and 4 begin. 
Canto 2, dark wind came driving over deep water from the south sweeping surf, surf upon the beaches, a roaring sea rolling endless, huge hoar-crested hills of thunder. The world darkened. Juan rode the moon through stormy clouds streaming northward. Canto three, in the south from sleep to swift fury, a storm was stirred, striding northward over leagues of water, loud with thunder and roaring rain, it rushed onward, and, and so on. And then Canto four, wolves were howling on the woods border, the windy trees wailed and trembled, and wandering leaves, wild and homeless, drifted dying in the deep hollows, right? So each of these cantos starts, to your point, with nature imagery and uh, incredibly arresting nature imagery that's 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 beautiful and haunting so yeah i think i think you're you're definitely onto something there it's it's tremendous how much stuff is in this poem that is not really the story of arthur it's actually just the scenery where where these figures mainly Guinevere, Lancelot, and Arthur and Gawain and Mordred are thinking things or occasionally saying a few things, but a huge percentage of the poem is the background. It's almost cinematic. It's almost as if mostly what happens in your imagination while you read this poem is seeing these figures in particular sort of poses or places. And, and it's that backdrop that is almost actually the foreground. And yeah, you've got this story and it's nice and familiar because there's just enough from the romance tradition where we've got these famous figures like Lancelot and Guinevere and their adultery. And, and there's just enough from the martial tradition to keep it pretty cool. Cause you got guys in like, I don't know, primeval forest fighting the bad dudes, you know, the heathens and who've been invading them. And, and you've got the civil strife, you know, you've got enough of the martial stuff to keep it interesting, but, but really it's just, it's this background. So I started out by reading the scene in like some primeval Hercynian forest in, in what would now be like Germany or the Netherlands maybe, or Denmark or someplace. And, but there's lots of other ways of, um, describing or other sort of uses Tolkien makes of natural imagery in the poem, short as it is. I mean, it's just, it's incredible how often he can, he can go from um, terrifying, sublime sort of natural imagery to something that's just, just like so peaceful. And <laughs> so, so Lancelot <clears throat> in, in Canto three, is in his tower sort of pining, moping. He wants Guinevere to call for his aid so that he can have an excuse to come back into the fray and fight really more for her than for Arthur, but it would be for Arthur's cause in this war. But she doesn't do it. And because he's been banished by Arthur, he can't go without an invitation, he feels. And... He's been up all night in this tempest, staring at this tempest. And Lancelot is a Breton figure. You know, he's in Brittany, he's sort of looking out over the, the wide part of the English Channel. And then he falls asleep at the window. The, the summons doesn't come. No horn he blew. 
no host gathered. He wavered and went not. That is to say, Lancelot didn't do those things. He didn't get his army ready to go to the aid. Wind was roaring, the towers trembled, tempest shaken. He falls asleep. Dawn came dimly. On the dun beaches, the foam glimmered, faint and ghostly. The tide was turning, tempest waning. Light leapt upward from the long shadow, Lord of the Rings phrase there, mm-hmm. and walking on the water, waves kindled as glass glittering green and silver. In somber sleep, by the sill drooping, lay Lancelot alone dreaming. His head was bowed by the high window, his eyes opened upon early day. The wind still walked in the wide heaven, lofty faring, but on lowly earth peace had fallen. Pools reflected the slanting sun, silver gleaming. Washed with water, the world shimmered. Bird sang to bird, blithe at morning. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. You can modulate the, the tone in, in his use of natural imagery. and yeah. It's particularly calm in the in, in in this canto in Canto three with with Lancelot, right? This seems to be sort of like as we have the poem, the sort of still center of the of 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 the poem, and it's odd that it to to me it's odd that he even talks about Lancelot because he's so you know like you're saying he's he's a he's much more of a French figure, but in the English tradition. The really big hero in Arthurian literature was Gowan. Everybody loved Gowan. And sometimes if you were adapting Chrétien romance and wanted it to, you know, do well in England and in, in translation into English, you'd put Gowan there in the title, right? Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and give him some <laughs> Gowan, right? Because that's what the people came right. here for. Right. So, you know, it's really not till Mallory that in, you know, that in that in English, Lancelot becomes a really important figure. And Mallory has to, in order to have that happen, Mallory has to really play up how great Lancelot is and how Gowan-like he is, right? Until, like, obviously now we think of Lancelot more that way than... Yeah, than they're constantly um, being compared. Yeah, it's like... But, but yeah, Lancelot in Tolkien he whatever he might have done in the past and it's clear that arthur needs him and gowan's kind of goofy for telling arthur not to call on lancelot uh, because they 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 did need him but but yeah he's so he's just kind of mopey <laughs> in 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 canto three or if not mopey you know drooping the yeah i mean uh, you gotta think that he'll like if he'd finished it like tolkien would draw on the tradition where like maybe Lancelot does eventually come and it's too late. Yeah. And you know, he comes just in time to like really lick Mordred, but but Arthur's already dead and the kingdom has fallen and you know what I don't know. But I, I think could see maybe he was going there. And yeah, I don't know. But so so I I've I've read a bit there and, and I've already read a lot in terms of the natural imagery, and it's just something that I would the the last thing I want to say about that before I want to touch on just one last part of the poem and do do some justice to something that I know you've pointed out, Chris, is interesting, which is Guinevere, Guinevere is But before I do that, the, the thing I want to just mention is that Tolkien is in this poem capable of using that natural imagery, not only in a lot of different tones, you know, pastoral, idyllic kind of writing, or just kind of calm or 
haunting and ominous and sublime in the in the wilderness. He has, has quite a wilderness sensibility for a European who would hardly ever have seen any wilderness in his life, and if, if any at all. And he has incredible range there. He's also capable of using it in symbolic ways. And so one of the yes. most recurring images in the uh, sort of leitmotif, or actually it's it's more than that. It, it's it's like an overriding symbol of the whole poem is the tide. You know, Tolkien loved the sea. He loved the ocean. In his later life, he would he would vacation a lot around like Portsmouth or somewhere there on the south coast of England. And, you know, I think one of his, I could be making this up, but it's, it's plausible anyway. One of his earliest memories was maybe from his sea passage from South Africa, where he was born to England when he would have been very, very little. And he's able to use, so the tide is this recurring thing to turn back the tide of time or to not be able to do that, to realize that the tide has passed. And so actually that third canto where I was just reading with Lancelot, this weird thing that Lancelot realizes at the end, it gets all it gets all weird and actually kind of unclear exactly what is going through Lancelot's head there at the end of the third canto. Ever times would change and tides alter and o'er hills of morning hope come striding to awake the weary while the world lasted. So this is the lasting of the world or the falling of the world, the collapsing of the world. So it's not part, the fall of Arthur is the fall of more than just Arthur. It's the the lapsing of an entire world. And that's bound up with this notion of tides, this this like inevitable gravity of things. But then it shifts and, and, and Lancelot is like, the tides of chance had turned backward. Their flood was past, flowing swiftly. Death was before him and his day setting beyond the tides of time to return never among waking men while the world lasted. It's tied used twice right there. And that, I mean, so it's just, it's mm. all over the whole thing. So so Tolkien is capable of using the tide as a overarching symbol, metaphor in this poem. And he's also capable of using light and dark in language that is, goes like straight into the Lord of the Rings. Like the idea of a long shadow stretching over a land. I mean, that is the language of, of Sauron and Morgoth and and also a, a little less obviously but light and whiteness of course not in a racial sense as as that word now means but just the color or lack of color I guess the brightness is all over this thing too and there it's maybe worth noting that Gwynhuivar the Welsh name Guinevere means the white like ghost or phantom mm. or something the white the white fae yeah. And she's called a fae woman in this yep. poem. The white shadow, I've sometimes heard it's translated. It doesn't really mean shadow, but but it's good. It's a good translation nonetheless. So Guinevere is, is a really fascinating character for Tolkien to take any interest in because she's usually not interesting. Yeah. She's usually just kind of like mindlessly awful or <laughs> or just like not really there. She's just kind yeah. of a t- in a trophy like a cause for the downfall but there's nothing much to her in this poem short as it is focused as it mainly is on as i've said the natural world and and also just like arthur coming back she manages to be quite fascinating in the second canto mordred comes to her and you know man she's in a bad place she's there you know she's she's like not in the best of standing because of lancelot and all that yep but she's still the queen, but her king's not there. And Mordred's this dude who is going to take advantage of that. 
you know, he comes up to her and he says, Oh no, she sat silent, no sign giving at the wide window. Wan gleamed the day and her bright tresses bleakly golden. Bleakly golden. This is crazy. Yeah. Gray her eyes were as a glittering sea, glass clear and chill. They his glance challenged, proud and pitiless. So she doesn't have the best quality. He's not he's not painting her as like the moral paragon in any sense. Right. But she's, she's very interesting and, and sort of strong. But pale her cheek for her heart for heart misgave her as one that hounds tameth to follow her feet and fawn at hand when wolves unawares walk and walks among them. Then spake Mordred with his mouth smiling, Hail, Lady of Britain! It is long sitting alone lordless in loveless days, a kingless queen in courts that echo to no noise of knighthood. Yet never shalt thou on earth hereafter thine hours barren and life find loveless, nor less than queen with dimmed glory thy days revile, though chances change if thou choose aright. A king courts thee, his crown to share, his love offering and loyal service. So that's Mordred being nice. Saying like, couldn't help but notice you're a queen missing a king. Well, <laughs> guess what? And then she chastises him and reminds him that, you know, actually the king is still around. He's just not here. And Mordred, of course, won't have it. He says, now never again from northern wars shall Arthur enter this island realm. Nor Lancelot do like love remembering to thy tryst return. Time is changing, is that theme again. The West waning. That is such a Tolkien, you know, like yep. into the West kind of sense. The West waning. This is not how somebody uh, in the Middle Ages talked. About anything. Right, right. The West waning. A wind rising in the waxing East. Uh, the world falters. New tides are running in the narrow waters. <clears throat> False or faithful, only fearless man shall ride the rapids from ruin, snatching power and glory. I purpose so. Thou at my side shall lie, slave or lady, as thou wilt or wilt not, wife or captive. This treasure take I, ere towers crumble, and thrones are o'erturned. Thirst first will I slake, I will be king after, and crowned with gold. Pretty terrible. Mm -hmm. Really high way of saying he's going to rape her if she doesn't give him willingly what he wants and she manages to put him off for that night she says gosh i didn't see this coming and of course that's not true <laughs> she definitely saw it coming and, and the, the poem says as much but she gets him to, to put it off for that night and then she flees and gets away before mordred can take her she goes back to this place that is described as the hidden country. Yeah. Country of her father, Lyodegrans, which is like, so Guinevere is like this half fairy elven yeah. creature in this poem who's able to get away. You know, she can't do much like actively to aid Arthur or get Lancelot to come there, but she can mm -hmm. actually stab off Mordred, who's not in any apparent right. way posed, you know, so... She's not like a witch working outright magic, but she has this fairy quality of being able to right. aid human machinations. So fled she now, Guinevere the Fair in gray mantled, cloaked in darkness from the court stealing, right? So sounds a little like certain other fairy cloaks that, that we have elsewhere in Tolkien. But uh, yeah, it's and and yeah, like like you're saying again and again, she's compared to a fae to a, to a fairy. Mallory has the same sort of plot twist where Mordred's like, 
hey guinevere you know it's 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 me or or you know really deep trouble so uh, <laughs> you know make your choice and and she's like oh yeah I'm really excited to marry you. Just let me go to London and get some get get some wedding clothes, like right. a, like a wedding dress shopping, and I'll be right back. And so she goes to London. She holds herself up in the Tower of London. So he's he's besieging right. London when. So, but it's the same. It's the same tactic, but she does it in Mallory. She's not like an elf, you know? right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's just like, exactly. Oh, she's there's no hidden kingdom she can go yeah, to. Yeah, she's, she's not she's going in to the Tower Rotary. of London. Yeah, secret hidden land. It almost feels like a fairyland within Britain. Because you have absolutely no idea where it is for real, like in the geography mm -hmm. of Britain. But so she's not only just that. I mean, if it was that alone, that would already make her a more interesting Guinevere than you typically get in a lot of this stuff. But Tolkien also makes her very willful. You know, the, the, the second canto ends, Guinevere the fair, not Mordred only, should master chance and the tides of time turn to her purpose. I mean, you, just, you cannot get away from the tide image. Like, she just, if you don't want to read about tides, do not pick up this poem. That's right. But, but she's also got a very strong will. And she's she's realizing she's in a tough situation, but she's determined to actually come out on top. And I mean, I think that that's kind of amazing. So yeah. you don't really feel... Yeah, I mean, I, I think she's actually a sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. I mean... You, knowing what you know of the story and whatever adultery and, and she's kind of mercenary but you still end up actually thinking like i i want her to win i want her to oh, yeah. at least somehow do mordredon so i mean it, all this in a poem of a thousand lines i mean it's it's really it's really quite an achievement and i yeah. apologize for having to read so much of that far more quickly no. than really deserves i just wanted to get in a lot of quotation and yeah you know, we in this time but read read slowly it's it's even more rewarding yeah and more comprehensible before you know the podcast was like oh it's it's so short i'll just zip through <laughs> it again you know just and i'm like, not, I'm like yeah here, the baby's crying you know the kids are talking <laughs> to me and i'm like okay line five line yeah yeah oh exactly no it, even though it is manageably short for a long poem it is not easy to read very quickly. And actually, the the I, I can state right off the bat the main reason for that, which is that in order to meet the requirements of the the verse form that Tolkien was trying to work with, which is basically a kind of old English poetry, he had to employ a huge, huge number of syntactical inversions so saying the words in the, like yoda basically <laughs> he has to switch everything around from normal english word order which yeah. used to be back in the days lancelot when, he missed right yeah oh there's one let me see if i can to battle came not uh, you yeah. would have heard a number of them in the in the passages that i just read there's one line near the very end i i marked it in my copy here where Arthur is coming back, he's won the naval battle, and he's sort of debating with himself and then with Gawain whether he wants to then land and continue to fight Mordred's soldiers who are on the land. And, you know, he says, the, the poem goes, he's, this is Arthur talking to Gawain, we have won the water, 
Okay, that's fine. That's a that's a coherent normal English sentence. We have won the water. The walls remain, and manned with menace, might defy they. What? <laughs> <laughs> might uh, defy them? Weird. No, not no, might no. defy them. <laughs> they might defy. Yeah, they yeah. might defy. All right. right. Yeah. So, 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 listeners, the reason this worked well in Old English was because it was inflected, which means that you, it doesn't depend on word order for you to know what's the subject and what's the object of a verb. You have particular endings that signal, oh, this is the object of this verb, this is the subject of this verb. So you're way more flexible with Old English with this with this sort of poem. And you can afford to have these very short alliterating lines. And it is a feat even to make it as understandable as Tolkien makes it with these sort of short alliterative lines. But yeah, uh, it, yeah. it's really... So, I mean, even, right, it, it is a feat, what he did manage to do. And and it should be said, that, so this poem was most probably composed almost entirely in the 1930s. And at that time, educated people were educated in Greek and Latin. Not in Old English, typically, but, but definitely in Greek and Latin, as of course Tolkien was. And those languages, like Old English like most old languages in the Indo-European family, are paradigmatic languages. They, 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 they have these inflected forms so that word order is not very important. And, the re and so what you see in English language poetry, even modern English poetry, so from, say, the 16th century onwards, is a whole lot of inversion up through almost pretty much to Tolkien's lifetime. Because the educated audience that read the poetry of the high culture poetry, anyway, was so accustomed to dealing with a paradigmatic as opposed to a syntagmatic language. Uh, Our modern English is syntagmatic, and that just means word order matters a lot for us. We've we've lost the the ability to be flexible, very flexible there. Um, so even though you see modern English writers doing all these inversions and stuff, it could get away with it for a heck of a long time because the nature of their cultural formation basically gave them an advantage in understanding that kind of thing. And it would even hold on in speech patterns and stuff. And you'll find it in old ballads and stuff too, with, you know, poetry mm -hmm. uh, from other strata of society. But yeah, so so to some extent we are, we just, we've gotten very far away from that now and we're not all trained in Greek and Latin or any other old languages. And so it's a lot harder for us to handle even just older poetry in modern English. Yeah. Or like Tolkien here, who's imitating or drawing very heavily on extremely old English, actual old English. Right. Right. So yeah, there is that main, that's the main source of the difficulty in terms of the verse itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't, Good. You know, don't, don't let any. Don't let it deter you, though. It, it, as yeah. long as you slow down and and like can get maybe a few minutes away from the the screaming baby, <laughs> then yep. you know you can you can get a handle on it. It's not except for the occasional line, like I, the one I just read with the might, which is a noun, but, but it sounds like it's an auxiliary verb because of the inversion. It's just it's crazy. The you know occasional moments like that where he surpasses Milton in in just like sheer incomprehensibility because <laughs> writing English that's not really English. Everyone said English or Milton wrote no man's English and 
<laughs> he, he, he wrote the finest Latin verse that's ever been written in English. <laughs> Paradise Lost. Every now and then it gets that way, but mostly it's actually pretty manageable. And I hope that came across yeah. in what I read at first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, what I what I always you know what I always tell my students anyway is like, <laughs> you're going to be so frustrated if you try to read a poetic work very quickly just to have it read for class because yeah. poetry is not meant to be read that way. It's not meant to be read like prose. It doesn't. It doesn't you can't just sort of get the highlights and, and, you know, you, you need to absorb it. You need to meditate on it. You need to spend some serious time just sitting with it. And it's, it's so worth it when you do, when it, it, it does things to you that normal pros cannot. You and, have to uh, read it out loud. Yeah. You have yeah. to hear it. It's music. Yep. Yep. It, it's, it's language approaching music and it's, it's the only way to really get it. So, I mean, if you do read the fall of Arthur or reread it, you may very well be tempted to read it out loud and you know maybe that'll make people around you think you're nuts but maybe they already think that anyway they probably, yeah, they do. probably do if you're reading, if you're reading right there. Right there anyway so uh, what do you have to lose that's right live up to the reputation so it, it really does read quite wonderfully and when you read aloud a lot of the difficulties that can present themselves from inversions and maybe a few other archaisms will just kind of evaporate as long as you read slowly. Now, an interesting thing about this poem is that it is printed with these caesuri in the middle. So it's just a mm -hmm. gap in the middle of the line. And we don't need to get too deep into the prosody of it, but that was a governing feature of the, the prosody for this poetry. Yeah. Tolkien was trying to do in each line was yeah. obey certain rules for how you alliterate or really... Right assinate i guess maybe it would be the better more awkward sounding but more accurate term he's just trying to balance sounds on each side of that gap yeah. in the middle of these already short lines yeah yeah so, so he doesn't have a lot of space to work with that's right that's right yeah and 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 again i mean one of the, one of the really interesting things about this is that there was an alliterative poem uh, in the 14th century that was more or less about this the alliterative morte arthure and it's it's alliterative as well, but it's not alliterative the way that Old English alliterates. The lines are much much longer because right. it's it's really hard to make lines that are this short make sense and still have them alliterate in modern English. But you have a kind of you know the the one or two stressed words in the first half of the line will then alliterate with a third stressed word in the second half, or or sometimes Please. just a second. And then, and then you've got, you know, after after the Lancelot interlude where he basically just kind of like looks at the sea for a while and thinks about, you know, thinks about, well, is someone in trouble? Well, I, I haven't gotten any, haven't gotten any word. It's kind of Lancelot's career ending in this stasis, the stillness, right? That that in some ways mirrors the sort of courtly uh, tradition that, that he comes from in the first place. You've got, you've got Canto for with uh, Mordred's agents going out to try to find Guinevere, right? And and looking all over the, to the Black Mountains, horsemen hastened on the houseless stones, no track leaving. Tumbling waters from the fells falling, foaming in darkness, they heard as they passed to the hidden kingdom, night fell behind. The noise of hooves was lost in silence in a land of shadow, right? So, so much there that he's going to pick up, you know, he's got these 
hunters out there, you know, trying to trying to find someone the, the queen they Nazgul to try and find that's him. right that's right uh <laughs> the queen they hunted with cold hatred till their hope failed them amid houseless stones halting hungry eyed under the hills menace at the walls of wales war was behind them and woe in britain winds were shifting mordred waiting but such an achievement and such a fun poem and and just you know fun if you know stuff about arthur fun i i would imagine and, and not just fun but just like you know profound and enjoyable to chew on if you you know don't know a great deal more about arthur than like i don't know monty python and the holy grail or sword in the stone or something like oh, that yeah. so i think I definitely think get a lot out of it without even caring very much about the arthurian tradition yeah, yeah. Let alone knowing it well like i say the the story the rudiments of which i think most most of us know at least a little is there kind of hanging in the background and, and you've got these kind of characters in some vivid moments from that story yeah. scene at sea people racing over weird phantom countrysides but there's just i don't know the, the overall like aesthetic of it the feeling of it is a lot more like reading parts of the Lord of the Rings or maybe some stories from other parts of the legendarium. Yeah. Yeah. But, and so that's, that's what makes it so interesting to me. Like, so why did he do it? Why, why, why did he start this and then write that stuff instead? Right. And then he wanted to go back to it, but then he didn't for some reason. Yeah. You know, does it have something to do with the historicity of it? Like we were talking about a while back. I don't think so, because Arthur is like mostly mythological with a real historical basis. And that could kind of describe the fiction that he wanted to create for the legendarium. He wanted to create a false, a pseudo historical character who brings us the the legends of of middle earth yeah and so i mean he's kind of it's not like it's not like he's afraid of of historicity right that's not the case with tolkien at all he 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 was a philologist and that means somebody who has to care at least a little about history and and respect that kind of learning so so yeah yeah, it remains mysterious to me i mean i uh, yeah go ahead go ahead no, I know. I, I'm just sort of expressing my, my puzzlement. So, I think as as much as Tolkien written and left unfi- unfinished, possibly even a better question to ask is why why did he finish the things that he did finish? Because because most of the stuff he wrote, I'd say never, divine intervention clearly you know, because yeah. he's mostly incapable on his own of finishing. yeah yeah, yeah. I, it's 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 like many of us guardian angel uh, who was particularly keen on on certain parts of the yeah budget. yeah but uh but yeah one one thing you know uh, to to me arthur because because he was was so i mean even jeffrey of monmouth right he's he's french arthur's the french picked up the legends of arthur from the sort of celtic folks that ended up settling in france after you know after the saxons came in from also 
other Celtic inhabitants of England as as the Normans conquered England again. And so to me, it's always weird that Tolkien, who viewed the Norman invasion of England as just a, a, a tragedy, um, that he would take up the the stuff that the Normans and that the that the French were especially excited about, right? And I think at least you know one one thing that Arthur has always been about, and one thing that Tolkien loves to think about is how civilization ends right what yeah. what all that stuff about what the does it mean and the, the yeah. passing of the west and and all this kind yeah. of thing yeah. yeah so listeners we are going to put a pin in this conversation and we're going to come back next time we're going to talk a little bit about how tolkien you know thinks about endings in the context of Jonathan Geltner's own sort of thought experiments, which is which is basically this: if all Western culture were to disappear, and all we had was Tolkien, what would we be able to rebuild? What what would we be able to um, rebuild of, of Western culture? Am I putting am I putting that well, Jonathan? Or I think I think that was well put. Okay, uh, all right. Was, uh, well. Listeners, we will see you next time. All blessed encounter full of joy and scheduled on a decent plan. With here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.